Crosspoint Church's weekly sermon audio from lead pastor Brad Evangelista. For more information about Crosspoint, visit InsideCrosspoint.com. All right, well, a couple things that we're going to uh, get into here. A couple things that I want to I want to mention before I read the text. And we're going to read the first 11 verses of Corinthians. And we're going to just begin what will probably be five or six messages that it's going to take us to get through 1 Corinthians 12, 13, and 14. And by the way, Corinthians is only 16 chapters, so we're coming down to the end. So we're going to be done with Corinthians probably uh, before the summer ends. Many of you ask where we're going next. We're, We're going to go probably to an Old Testament book. Probably Ruth or Ecclesiastes, but don't hold me to that. But definitely going to go to an Old Testament book after we get down with Corinthians so that we don't get in the habit of just being Christians that read the New Testament. But we're going to uh, really go slowly through these few chapters, which I think are very important. Now, a couple of things, some obstacles that we need to understand and engage and remember as we get into these chapters on spiritual gifts. Number one is that there's a tendency in church circles to kind of mystify the spiritual gifts. There's usually kind of two camps that are sort of pitted against one another. One camp is, is sort of the Pentecostal charismatic wing of the church that believes in spiritual gifts. Some of them put a heavy degree of emphasis on the spiritual gifts. And they tend to sort of use spiritual gifts uh, as a, a sort of marker of spiritual maturity or giftedness or pride. And, and a lot of times they'll look across the aisle at their brothers and sisters who may not believe that the gifts are still in operation, sort of down the end of their noses and sort of think sort of, uh, sort of uh, suspiciously about why these people over here in this other camp don't believe in these things that have brought them what they consider to be such joy and power in their lives. And if you are in that camp, uh, you're welcome here. I, I share a, a large degree of agreement with you, but I would encourage you to, to sort of enter into this discussion with a lot of humility, realizing that much of, of, of the church is led by men and women in this particular camp who may disagree with you, who have much to offer us. And, so, so, and then if you're in this camp, maybe you grew up in a, in a church culture where the spiritual gifts were not talked about, or maybe they were talked about, but they were presented in a way that they have ceased and are no longer active in the church, and you have a lot of suspicion about these sort of emotionally driven, strange people who, you know, have uh, prayer streamers and banjos and, and tambourines that sort of break out in the middle of the service, and, and you think those people are crazy, and they're sort of the, the strange uncle of Christianity that, you know, we, we have to put up with at family gatherings, but you would really not prefer to introduce any of your friends. Um, I would encourage you also to, to engage maybe their point of view and, and these chapters with a high degree of humility. You may be asking, where do I fall? Where does the leadership of Crosspoint fall in these issues? Well, we're actually kind of right in the middle. There's just a very broad oversimplification of sort of the different camps within the faithful Christian church as to where people stand on the operation of the gifts. There's, there's this camp over here, which, which believes that the gifts have ceased. And then that would be kind of the, the, the cessationist camp. And then there's a camp over here the Pentecostal camp, which they believe all of the gifts are in operation today, but they would believe that it would put a high degree of emphasis on tongues as a sort of special gift that is a marker of some spiritual experience. And we would disagree with both of those camps. And I would find myself in the middle believing that all of the gifts, I'm just going to lay my cards on the table right now so you're not wondering where I am, all of the gifts we believe, I believe, Uh, are still in operation today, but that no one particular gift is a marker of a certain spiritual experience. And then, which we'll get into when we get into 1 Corinthians 14, there is uh, some some pretty clear guidelines in the Scriptures as to how some of these gifts should actually operate in the church today. And we will get into that very thoroughly when we get to chapter 14. And so we're kind of humbly in the middle here, and there's still a lot of questions that we need to answer, but that's where we are. The second thing I want to say is that this is an open-handed issue for us. And uh, what we mean by that is we have a sort of a two-handed view of, of theology here at Crosspoint. And by that we mean that there are things that we hold in a closed fist. These are things that all historical, orthodox, Protestant Christians have believed really since the Apostles' Creed. And that was before there were actually Protestants. That happened in the... Uh, early 1500s, but faithful Christianity 
the essence of what it means to be a Christian. This is issues that are centered on the gospel, the inerrancy of scripture, the reality of the Trinity, the substitutionary atonement of Jesus, the, the reality of God as creator, that we are saved by Christ's work on the cross alone. These are things that we believe that all faithful Christians for the past 2,000 years have believed, and there, it's very clear in scripture. And then there are things that we hold in an open hand, and when we say that we hold them in an open hand, we're not saying that they're not important or that we don't have clear stances on them, but we realize that Christians who love Jesus just as much as we do may have different opinions about these less than clear issues of doctrine, and so we want to engage these issues with a lot of humility. And on virtually all of these open-handed issues, I have very clear stances on that are, that are clear biblical convictions, but in humility and charitability, I realize that other Christians who love Jesus as just as much as I do and we do may have different stances on them. And these are things like uh, the sovereignty of God and salvation, which you guys know I am a, 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 a very clear advocate of. I, I believe that God is sovereign in salvation. I believe that he predestines. I believe that he preserves. I believe that he is the, he is the providential author, author of all that is. I also believe uh, in, in uh, things like baptism by immersion. But if you don't believe that, okay, that's an open-handed issue. And this issue of spiritual gifts, although I believe they are in operation today, is not an issue that I think need divide us if you disagree with me. But let's engage this with a lot of humility as we work through these things today. And by the way, I was just reminded of this this week. I'm still very much in process. Uh, these are difficult issues. Let's enter into this with humility. So not only theologically am I still in process, but in my own sanctification, I'm still very much in process. I had a bad day yesterday. I, I don't mean, I don't mean not <laughs> the owner just gave me a sweet like bottom. No, I was sinning yesterday. It's not like the bad stuff happened to me and I needed a hug. I mean, I was just I was just a stinker to my family. I was, I was not a good husband and a good father. No disqualifying sin. I was just selfish and short-tempered and easily angered. And so we're, we're all very much in process, aren't we? And so let's, let's enter into this with a high degree of humility. Okay, let's read. I'm going to read and stop, read and stop. I've got three main points today. And, uh, and we'll get through it by, in, uh, by, we'll finish up with verse 11. All right, let me read verse 12, or chapter 12, verse 1. Paul writes, Now concerning spiritual gifts, brothers, I do not want you to be uninformed. Okay, what Paul is doing here is he is responding to a letter from the Corinthians. They have written him a letter, and now he is writing them back. And their letter was full of some of their internal disputes. And we've gone through some of those internal disputes. Remember, there was Christians that were differing over the issue of whether or not they should eat food offered to idols. There were some Christians that were aligning themselves with particularly charismatic personalities in the first couple chapters. Some were saying, well, I'm of Apollos, who's a great orator. And some were saying, well, I'm of Peter, because he was one of the original apostles. And some were saying, no, I'm of Paul. And some of the super spiritual were saying, well, I'm of Jesus. And so Paul is responding to many of the problems and the controversies and really the mess in the Corinthian church. And one of the big messes was this issue of spiritual gifts. The Corinthians were a very, very gifted group of people, but they were very, very selfish. And as we will read as we continue on, especially in chapter 14, that much of the issue with spiritual gifts in the Corinthian church was their misuse particularly of this gift of tongues, which, as I mentioned, we will get much more thoroughly into in a few weeks which we get in, when we get into chapter 14. But many of the Corinthians were using tongues out of order as sort of a marker of spiritual pride, and Paul is writing to them to untangle the theological knots that they have put themselves in through their arrogance and pride and selfishness. And he's saying that he does not want them to be ignorant or uninformed. Verse 2. You know that when you were pagans, you were led astray to mute idols, however you were led. Therefore, I want you to understand that no one speaking in the Spirit of God ever says Jesus is accursed, and no one can say Jesus is Lord except in the Holy Spirit. Okay, so before Paul gets into just a list of some of the gifts that are in operation in the Corinthian church, 
he, he stops here and he mentions something to them. He says, okay, now I, I don't want you to be ignorant about this. Okay, so let's, let's just pause here for a second and realize that because of one church's error and selfishness, we now get three chapters of beautiful, clear instruction from the Apostle Paul for us. You realize that God in His providence works through our hard-headedness for the blessing of others? This just sort of dawned on me. This is why we need to do life together. This is why you need to not go you know, underground with your stuff. This is why we need to be in small groups together. Do you see the principle here? God blesses the entire body of the church through the struggle and even the sin and selfishness of these Corinthians. But you, we're such individuals as, as American Christians. You know, God forbid anybody else in the church know that our life is tangled up or a wreck because of pride. And at least, even though they were prideful, they sort of had the audacity to write Paul and say, hey, Bob's jacked up. No, Joe's jacked up. Paul, straighten us out. And Paul wants them to be informed about these spiritual gifts. And then he goes on in verse 2 and 3 to mention before we even start to talk about the particular gifts of the Holy Spirit, he talks about the greatest gift of the Holy Spirit. And that's my point number one, is that salvation is the most miraculous gift of the Holy Spirit. I want you to understand that. Before we start dicing up the nine gifts that Paul mentions in particular here in these verses, let's take a step back and realize that salvation itself is the most miraculous gift of the Spirit. Look at verses 2 and 3 again. Paul says that when you were pagans, okay, a pagan is not a Christian, it's a, a worshiper of idols. And in the biblical context, they would kind of classify, there's pagans and Christians. Everybody in the world at that time was either a pagan or a Christian. And everybody in this room right now is either a pagan or a Christian. A pagan is somebody who does not worship Jesus. We all worship something. We all are, we were made to worship. We worship. Some of us worship ourselves. Some of us worship money. Some of us worship the opposite sex. Some of us worship the opinion of others. And some of us have had our hearts renewed and changed by Jesus and we're worshipers of Jesus. But this distinction still exists today. Some of you in this room are pagans still and you're being led astray by mute idols. Some of you are Christians who are still battling with idols. But Paul says that, look, some of you are pagans and you're being led astray by idols. In verse 3 he says, therefore I want you to understand, just to humble you here, that no one speaking in the Spirit of God ever says Jesus is accursed and no one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Spirit. Now, of course, we realize that a pagan can actually utter the phrase Jesus is Lord and not truly be a Christian, and a Christian can utter the phrase Jesus is accursed and not lose their salvation. But the point here is that Paul is making to them is not just these phrases sort of have some magic in them. What he's saying is that if you have become a Christian and you have understood and trusted in and received the Lordship of Jesus in your life, that happened not because you primarily did something, but because the Spirit of God made you alive. He made you realize that. Let me read you just a, a few scriptures about the work of the Holy Spirit. John, you may not want to flip there because there's going to be a bunch of them. Just jot them down. Jesus says this in John verse 16, uh, chapter 16, verses 7 and 8. He says, Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the Helper, meaning the Holy Spirit, will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. Verse 8, and when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. So the first thing that the Holy Spirit does in bringing a person to faith in Jesus is he actually convicts you of your sin. Where does where does the conscience come from? The, this whole sense of knowing right or wrong comes from the illuminating work of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit, before a person even becomes a Christian, the Holy Spirit in His kindness even allows you to feel guilty and bad for transgressing God's way and law. And so even the sense of guilt, even the sense of conviction is in itself a gift of the Holy Spirit illuminating our heart to how we have rebelled against our Maker. And then in John 3, a couple chapters earlier, at the beginning of John's Gospel, Jesus says this, and these are, these are profound words. 
speaking to the Spirit how he gives life. Listen to this in John chapter 3, verse 5. Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, he's in this conversation with Nicodemus now in John chapter 3, who came to him at night asking him these questions about who he really was. And Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. And so clearly there it says that you must be born of the Spirit. The Spirit must affect new birth in you. One little note here, by the way, this is not what this sermon is about. But many people over the years have been tripped up by Jesus' phrase there where he says, unless one is born of water and of the Spirit, you cannot be a Christian or enter the kingdom of God. Many have interpreted that incorrectly to think that Jesus is saying that you must be water baptized uh, in order to be a Christian. Uh, I, that's not what Jesus is saying, saying there. This is where you have to judge Scripture according to Scripture because we realize that in the rest of the New Testament, it says that we are saved by grace alone through faith alone in Jesus. And so it would, if that was true, if Jesus is saying there that you must be baptized, born of water, that then what about Paul where he says you're, you're saved by grace alone through faith alone and Christ alone. So is Jesus adding another work? And so to solve that problem, some people have said, well, what Jesus is speaking about there is, is, is the physical birth. Like, you know, like when a, a mother's water breaks before she goes into labor, that that's what Jesus is speaking there. So you actually have to be physically born. Uh, that's what he was speaking about there. And then, of course, you're just born by the Spirit. And I don't think that's what Jesus is saying either. What I think Jesus is saying there in water is he's referring back to the Old Testament Ezekiel verse that speaks about the ministry of the Holy Spirit that says that he will sprinkle you with water. And so this idea of the washing of the Holy Spirit, the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament is pictured as a work of washing or regeneration. And I think that's what Jesus, being of course a Jew, knowing the Old Testament, is saying there. So when you read that in John 3, don't let that trip you up and think, oh gosh, are we missing... Uh, some important doctrinal point there. Jesus is essentially saying the one and the same thing there when he says you must be born of water and the Spirit. That's not to say that water baptism is unimportant. And if you're a Christian and you have not been water baptized, you should be water baptized as a proclamation of the gospel. But it is not a requirement for salvation. He says then he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Let's continue. Verse 6 of John 3. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I say to you, you must be born again. Listen to this now, verse 8. These are humbling verses. The wind, which, which there in verse 8 he says the wind, which is another, which the word for wind and spirit in the Greek language are interchangeable. And so when he says the wind, he's referring to the spirit. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear it sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Friends, that's a huge truth. So what Jesus is saying there is that if you are a Christian, you did not make yourself into a Christian by good works or mustering faith or cleaning yourself up. The Holy Spirit brought your dead heart back to life and as the first fruit of your new life, you turn from your sin, that's called repentance, and you turned to Christ in trust, that's called faith. Nobody makes himself a Christian. The Spirit makes us Christians by opening up our heart to the reality of what Jesus has done on the cross. So there, there are three uh, huge implications. Well, let me, let, me, let me, before we get into these implications, let me read you just a few more scriptures. Uh, Robert read this at the beginning of the service in Titus chapter 3, verses 4 through 7. Let me read that again. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. So how does God save us? Well, He saves us by, by the Holy Spirit coming into our dead heart with the power of the gospel, opening our heart to our sin, making us aware that we have transgressed God's law, and then causing us to look in faith to what Jesus has done on the cross to satisfy the requirements of God's law. And so the Holy Spirit 
brings, it's like the arrow of the Lord that carries with it the power to bring alive. And once it hits a dead heart, when God saves a person, he causes the Holy Spirit to hit their heart to make them alive. That's what the Holy Spirit does. He isn't just this sort of strange, mystical fog machine that appears when Pentecostals have services. He, he is the very presence of God that comes and brings life. So if you're a Christian today, you're a Christian because the Holy Spirit opened your dead heart to the reality of what Christ did to make you alive. And he, he doesn't just do that, then he he doesn't just open up a heart and then leave. Then he adopts us. And this, I think, is the most stunning and spectacular of the Holy Spirit's work is that he actually lives in us. Listen to this in Romans chapter 8, which, by the way, Romans chapter 8 is probably the most spectacular mountain in Scripture. Romans in itself is just an incredible book. But Romans chapter 8, oh, that is a that is a, Romans, you would do well to go home this afternoon, this afternoon and forget about the race. They're just turning left anyway over and over and over again. And read and dwell on the beauty of Romans chapter 8, which I think is my favorite chapter in the Bible. This is what Paul says about the Spirit's work, adopting Spirit's work in our life. He says, for all who are led by the Spirit are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. So the Spirit actually takes up residence in you, adopts you, and makes you realize that you're a child of God. And Paul says basically the same thing to the Galatians. Let me go ahead to Galatians 4 and read this beautiful scripture. But when the fullness of time, Galatians 4, verse, 5, verse 4, but when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. Do you see the trinity at work here? God, God predestines, the son accomplishes, and then the spirit brings life. Do you see this? Verse 6, and because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son, and if a son, then an heir through God. And so the spirit actually lives in you if you're a Christian. He made you alive, but it wasn't just a, a one-hit thing. He actually lives in you now. That is spectacular, friends. The, the implications of these truths about the miraculous saving work of the Holy Spirit. Before we even unpack these particular gifts Paul mentions, the implications of these are huge. And I see three of them. Just three quick, quick implications of the most miraculous gift of the Holy Spirit being salvation. Number one, it should cause worship, right? It should cause worship. <laughs> this is hard for us because we're Americans and we get whatever we want, Right? I want McDonald's, I go to McDonald's. I want Chick-fil-A, I go to Chick-fil-A. I feel like a little, a little, you know, seafood, Red Lobster. Boom. I don't like this on the TV, boom, I change the channel. Softball's on ESPN right now, I change it over to ESPN News. I get the highlights. I don't like basketball, I go to NFL Network. Fox News, don't like them, too conservative, I go to MSNBC. Liberal freaks, I go back to Fox News, Whatever. We have all these choices and it lulls us to sleep thinking that we're actually able to do stuff, right? And it produces in us this sort of arrogance and a sort of, a sort of entitlement. As if because we're Americans, God's just sort of obligated to do stuff for us, friends. He was not obligated to save you. Do you realize that? You are not a Christian because you were born in Columbus, Georgia, or in the Bible Belt. You are a Christian because of the sovereign grace of God and nothing else. You're not a Christian because you are better than the next cat next to you. You are not a Christian because of anything other than the kindness of God. And that should produce in us worship, friends. Worship. Yes. Somebody gets it. 
So how do we get over the gospel, man? How does it become mundane? It should produce worship in us. It should produce humility. Friends, do you realize that if you didn't make it happen, you have no reason to boast in it? That's what Paul says in Ephesians 2 that Will talked about last week, which was so good. If you missed Will's message last week, get it, man. That was spectacular. We have no reason to boast in this. We don't look down the end of our noses at anybody because God saved us in spite of ourselves. And finally, it should produce in us confidence because the God who saved us is not with us. And as, John, as Jesus says in John chapter 6, he loses none that are his. None that are his. And so just this saving work of the Holy Spirit, which is the most miraculous gift of the Holy Spirit, should produce in us worship, humility, and confidence. But okay, let's, let's, let's keep going. That's truth number one. Salvation is the most miraculous gift of all. The second truth that I want us to see, even in just these first three verses very quickly, is that the mission of the Holy Spirit is to illuminate and bring glory to the person and work of Jesus. The mission of the Holy Spirit is to illuminate and bring glory to the person and work of Jesus. J.I. Packer, an old British theologian who I love very much, he's in his 90s, he wrote, he's written many books, and he wrote about this ministry of the Holy Spirit. He says it's like the floodlight ministry of the Holy Spirit. Oftentimes, because we don't teach well on this in the church culture, we think that the Holy Spirit is sort of oriented towards us to illuminate things to us for our comfort and joy, and certainly He does those things. But the ministry of the Holy Spirit is to shine the light on Christ's work on the cross and to glorify Jesus. Let me read to you John chapter 14. This is Jesus speaking about the ministry of the Holy Spirit. He says in these, chapter, in this, these verses, John 14, 25, these things I have spoken to you while I am still with you, but the Helper, meaning the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. So the Holy Spirit comes to illuminate Christ's teaching in a way to the Christian. He continues on in John 15, one chapter over, verse 26. But when the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. And so the role of the Holy Spirit is to shed light on Christ and his glory and work. And then finally, one more verse on this truth, John 16, verses 13 through 15. When the spirit of truth comes, this is again Jesus speaking, he will guide you into all the truth. For he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak and he will declare to you the things that are to come. Listen to this, verse 14. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine. Therefore, I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. And so the, very clearly, Jesus says there what the mission and work of the Holy Spirit is primarily. It is to shine a floodlight on the glory of Christ and his work. And so any gift that we're about to talk about here in these few chapters has as its undergirding purpose to glorify Jesus and his work on the cross, not the individual that may be the conduit of that gift. Let me say that again, because lots of pride often unintentionally and sometimes intentionally surrounds giftedness. Any gift, and by the way, every gift comes from God. James 1, 27, I think it is, says that Every good and perfect gift comes from the Father of lights with whom there's no variation or shadow of turning. Any good gift in operation in the church today, every gift is from God, from the Holy Spirit, and comes to shed light on Jesus, not on us. All right, so let's keep going in verse 4. So first two points, salvation is the most miraculous gift of the Spirit. Point number two, the mission of the Holy Spirit is to illuminate and to bring glory to the person and work of Jesus and now let's keep going in verse 4. Now there are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit. Let me just stop there before we get into verse 5 and say that it's interesting to note that in verse 1 where Paul says, now concerning spiritual gifts, brothers, I don't want you to be uninformed. And then when he says in verse 4 that there are a variety of gifts. See, in English, both of those words for gifts get translated as the same word, the English word of gifts. But there's actually two different words going on there. In verse 1, 
Paul uses a word that likely the Corinthians wrote to him, and it was a word that meant spiritual things or spiritual people. And then Paul is writing back to them as a response to their letter to him, and he takes the focus off of the people, which is the word they used for him, and then he uses this word that he's going to use throughout here in these next few chapters, a word for gifts in verse 4, where he says, now there are a variety of gifts, and the word that he uses is a word charismata, which literally means grace gift. And so the word they used was sort of these gifts spiritual people. And he says, now concerning what you wrote to me about spiritual people, let's get into this now. And he says in verse 4, there are a variety of gifts. So he takes the focus off of the individual, and then he take, puts the focus on the grace of God that has given you this gift, which is literally what that word charismata means, from which we get our word charismatic or charisma. This gift that God has given. Verse 4, now there are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit. And there, vari- there are varieties of service, but the same Lord. And there are varieties of activities, but it is the same God who empowers them all in everyone. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. Okay, so point number three here that I want to mention before we start looking at these individual gifts is that all Christians clearly have spiritual gifts. He says it there in verse 4. There are varieties of gifts. And then in verse 7, to each is given, to each, to all of you that are Christians that I'm writing this letter to, to each of you, there's some manifestation, some presence, some gift for, of the Spirit for the common good. So let me just hammer this point home here. All, if you are a Christian, if the Spirit has made you alive and has caused you to not be led astray by mute idols, but has caused you to trust in Jesus and has done that miraculous work that we have just so gloriously read about, then you have a spiritual gift. You have a spiritual gift. God has given you something for the common good of the church. And that flows out of that. Truth flows out of that. The gift God has given you and me and all Christians is for the common good, and it was never meant to terminate on us. But if I could just offer one little critique of the Pentecostal movement in the church in America, which I'm sympathetic towards. I have many friends in this camp that I think often unintentionally they create a culture in their churches where the gifts are, are sort of presented as means of personal enrichment to help you sort of experience God better for yourself. Now, is that a byproduct of a gift that God may give you when you operate on that gift? Well, of course. But is that the main purpose of these gifts? No. The purpose of any gift God has given you is for the common good. Another thing I want to say about this is that no one gift is a particular indicator of any second experience of grace. We're going to talk about that much more thoroughly, particularly tongues. Is no, that one particular gift is not something that I believe the Scriptures bear out that say that all people w- would have or will have, or is an indicator of some second experience. And I also want to say, when along with this truth that all Christians have spiritual gifts, is that gifts are not necessarily an indication of spiritual maturity. Gifts are not necessarily an indication of spiritual maturity. The fruit of the Spirit is a much better indication of spiritual maturity A gift is not necessarily an indication of spiritual maturity. So just because a young guy has a gift of exhortation or preaching or something, some speaking gift, it doesn't mean that he should all of a sudden be the leader of the church. I mean, he may be able to deliver a sermon, but he may be a train wreck spiritually, right? And so gifts are not necessarily an indication of spiritual maturity. All right, those are the three truths. Now let's look at these next four verses and look a little bit more uh, closely at the nine gifts that Paul mentions here. Verse 8. For to one is given through the Spirit the utterance of wisdom, and to another the utterance of knowledge according to the same Spirit, to another faith by the same Spirit, to another gifts of healing by one Spirit, to another the working of miracles, to another prophecy, to another the ability to distinguish between spirits, to another various kinds of tongues, to another the interpretation of tongues. All these are empowered by one and the same Spirit, who apportions to each one individually as 
he wills. Okay, so in these four verses, Paul has mentioned nine different manifestations of spiritual gifts in the Corinthian church. I want, you, I want us to keep in three, three things in mind as we work through this list. Number one, that the purpose of all of these gifts is to equip the church to carry out its mission until Jesus returns. All right? We know that. These gifts aren't given for the Corinthians themselves. They're given for the, for the advance of the glory of Jesus in their time and context. And similarly, God gives us gifts to advance the gospel. The next thing I want us to keep in mind as we look at these nine gifts is that this is not an exhaustive list. These are not the only nine gifts that are in operation in the Corinthian church or the only nine gifts that should be in operation in the church today. In fact, in Romans chapter 12, Paul mentions a few lists, a list of gifts. And then in Ephesians chapter 4, he mentions these gifts of particular roles in the church. In each of these instances where the Bible mentions, specifically Paul, mentions a list of spiritual gifts, is never meant, and every commentator that you read on this, every commentator agrees that these are not exhaustive lists, that these are the nine, like this is the starting nine for the church in Corinth, and these, these guys should have on, you know, the starting jerseys for all time. That's not what, it's much more likely that Paul is just off the top of his mind mentioning the things that were particularly coming to mind as being junked up by the Corinthians in their context. And so this is not an exhaustive list of the Scripture. The lists, the, the, the gifts of the Holy Spirit are innumerable. As many people as there are in this room, are, are there different apportionments and types and manifestations of God's gift for the advancement of the gospel. This is not an exhaustive list. And the third thing I want us to look at and think about before we look at these particular gifts that Paul mentioned is that they shouldn't be viewed as sort of separate silos, like individual gifts, you know? Like, well, I've got this particular gift, especially the first two that are mentioned, wisdom and knowledge. Well, what's the difference between those two, really? I've got wisdom, but you've got knowledge. <laughs> as if they're like two different cities that are separated by city limits. It's just a goofy, strange way of understanding it. It makes no sense. Paul is just mentioning characteristics of the Spirit's gifting in people's lives that we oftentimes in modern American church have incorrectly taken to mean sort of this one particular thing. I've got wisdom, you've got knowledge. I've got the gifts of healing, but you've got faith. As if being used to have a healing gift doesn't also take faith. I mean, come on. There's overlap between these things. It's much more practical. Again, friends, there is no fog machine coming, right? This is, we don't go into a trance, right? This isn't some Luke Skywalker, Darth Vader, the Force. This is, think of the Holy Spirit, friends, as the real, it's the experience point of the Godhead. The Holy Spirit is the very presence of God himself among his people. It's not some strange, esoteric, mysterious, hard to figure out, scary, fearful, overly indulgent, emotionally driven, merely experiential thing. But it is the point, the experience point, it's where we, it's God with us. It's Emmanuel. And so with that as our backdrop, let's look at these nine particular gifts that, that Paul mentions here. Again, these are not exhaustive and there's much overlap. But since Paul mentions them, let's, let's look at what they are and think about what they might be. He mentions the utterance of wisdom and knowledge. I think these two things sort of go hand in hand. It's probably... Uh, there's a lot of overlap between these two particular gifts. And I think this is simply the ability to speak wise words that bring clarity, understanding, and knowledge to situations so that the way and will of Christ are more clear to his people. I think in much of American church culture that believes in the gifts, they tend to over-mystify and over-spiritualize these two gifts, as if the, the gift of wisdom and knowledge is some sort of scary thing where like this really super spiritual guy that's kind of the strange guy in the congregation comes up to you and says, uh, hey brother, can I talk to you after church? And you have this sense of fear because you know he's the guy that has the gift of wisdom and knowledge. And he says, uh, hey, where were you last Saturday night? 
you know, and it's kind of like he's going to expose you. Now, could God do that? Well, of course. Could God call your bluff on some sin? Could God give a brother or sister some sense to bring conviction of sin in your life and sort of read your mail? Of course, friends. God can do whatever he wants to do. Does God still do that today? Yes. But what is this? What does Paul have in view here? He has in view the everyday speech between Christians who are diving into the word of God, who are loving one another, who are humble, who should speak words of wisdom and knowledge and discernment to one another so that the way and will of Christ are more clearly known to his people so that his people can walk in it and be a better fragrance of Christ in this world. This should happen over conversations around coffee, at, at, at Starbucks even. And you guys know my feelings about Starbucks. I even believe that God's spirit can move in Starbucks. This should happen. This should happen between, over lunch, on the phone, in prayer meetings. Christians should be speaking words of wisdom and knowledge. Older Christians to younger Christians. Mature Christians to new Christians. Christians should bring wisdom about the way and work and will of Jesus to one another that illuminate the way of Christ. Friends, this is not mystical or strange. This is everyday and regular and should be prevalent in the church today. And that's what I think Paul is saying. The ability to speak wise words that bring clarity, understanding, and knowledge to situations so that the way and will of Christ are more clear to his people. I think that's what wisdom, these utterances of wisdom and knowledge are. And of course, God can go much more specific on that. But the church and the conversation between the people of God's church should be full of these types of utterances. Then he mentions faith, the third gift he mentions there. Now, in view here, I think he's not speaking about the saving faith that all who are Christians receive as a gift, but some measure of extraordinary faith in God by which God uses to do something out of the ordinary. This is the type of faith that I think Jesus is speaking about when he says that we can move mountains because of our faith. Now, of course, we know that God is the one that does it, but in the beautiful picture of God's providence and grace, he grace gifts people at times with this type of faith, which he then uses as the means by which he does some extraordinary thing to display the greatness of his name in a community. An example of this might be, uh, that God might give a member of our church, if we were going through a particular uh, trial as a church body, or, or, or maybe a, a person, uh, an individual, two Christians were going through a particular trial, and there was some very difficult circumstance, and God would give one Christian in that group or relationship, or one Christian in this church, maybe a gift of faith, by which then God, which then that person, then I'm sure would probably be coupled with some word of knowledge or, uh, uh, or wisdom to bring faith to rise up in this group of people so that they would believe God for some great thing. And then God uses that as the means by which he, he advances this body or this relationship in some great way for the glory of his name. I mean, friends, it could be a sickness that God gives a brother or sister faith to pray for somebody. It could be some situation we as a church are dealing with. I I can remember the first five years of this church where we very unwisely started the church out in the middle of the woods. I mean, we started the church. If if you've only been around here for the past six months or so, we started out in the middle of where nowhere empties into nothing in the woods. And this beautiful little schoolhouse is where we decided to strategically place the church for the glory of God's name. That was a wonderful building. The problem is it was 15 miles away from where anybody lived. And, and, And there were times in my heart where I felt this forlornness about about this maybe less than strategic endeavor that we had gotten ourselves into. And every now and again, some brother or sister in the church would just speak a word of faith saying, Brett, hang in there, man. God has a plan for us as a group of people. He wants to move for this church. And it would lift my heart in faith. And then we would pray together. And I believe that God or providentially used faith gifts in this very body to bring about our moving into this building. That's the gift of faith that God at times gives to bring about some extraordinary thing in the midst of his people for the glory of his name and the joy of his people. Gifts of healing, which I think the next one Paul mentions are very closely related to this. 
And notice that he says the gifts of healing, plural, not the gift of healing. So I think we should really shy away from thinking that if somebody is used to pray for a person and they uh, are miraculously healed without medical intervention, that we should all of a sudden classify that person as having the gift of healing. So I want to say this real gently because I, I don't, look, I want to pastor you. I don't want to beat you up. But if you watch Christian television and you watch TBN in particular, and you have been swayed or heavily influenced by some of these televangelists on TV that claim to have the gift of healing and have these crusades where they push on people and blow on people and bring these folks up and announce all these healings. Friend, honestly, I don't know the hearts of those brothers or sisters, but I think, I, certainly I believe God could heal. But I think much of what is called the gift of healing in those circles is just gibberish. It's, it's, it's very unhelpful. At the best, it's unhelpful. And at the worst, it's probably wolves, spiritual wolves, looking to prey upon very impressionable Christians. So if you, if you have bought in or sent money to those ministries, and if you, if you have a name in your mind, and you want to know what I think about it, look, I, I'm just a guy, all right? I'm just a guy, but I will give you my opinion. And then you do with that what you will. But guard your heart against some of the antics that you see on these. It is the gifts of healing that God sovereignly gives. And he gives it as he wills. And I don't think he gives it to one particular guy who then should build a ministry and buy Learjets and have million-dollar homes in Florida and white suits. And these gifts of healing then come. Nothing, there's nothing wrong with a white suit, I guess. I, don't <laughs> I wouldn't wear one, but whatever. Uh, I think that what's at view here is it strongly suggests that there were different gifts of healing. Not everyone necessarily he was healed through one person. And it, it would be, I think, a physical healing, maybe an emotional healing, whatever. And I think that still happens today. I think that God also heals people through modern medicine through the common grace of medical intervention. I think that every Christian doctor, that in some sense, has a gift of healing. I think that the, inter, the invention of, of uh, pharmaceutical care and, and, and medicines are a gift from God that certainly can be abused like every other thing that's good. But all of that is a gift of God. And a, Christi and a doctor who's not a Christian can be used because of God's good common grace as means of healing for a Christian through some surgery. And all of this is just God's goodness to his people. And we need not dice this thing up. So if you're sick, let the elders of the church and other Christians pray for you that you might be healed. And if it seems like in God's providence he doesn't do that, then schedule an appointment with a doctor and take your antibiotics and get rest and eat better and drink more water and all those things. And if you've got a cancer in your body, let's pray that God might miraculously, in his providence, bring glory to his name by getting rid of that thing. But should he not, then let's go to the doctor and consider surgery of having that thing taken out. And maybe in God's providence, friends, listen to me, you might die from that sickness. But how you die might even bring glory to Jesus' name. Do you realize he is sovereign? He is sovereign, friends. And just because God does not heal on this earth doesn't mean that God is incapable of that thing or doesn't still do that. Friends, the ultimate healing is the healing of your soul because even if you're healed of some sickness, you're still going to die. So if it takes faith for God to heal us of some cancer, we shouldn't just isolate down on that and say that if a person isn't healed, then there's no faith because God is providential. So let's be people that hold these things in tension and don't rob God of his sovereignty. If you're sick, get prayed for and God might heal you. If he doesn't, go to the doctor. If he doesn't, let's glory together walking through the trials of life, realizing that in everything, God works all things together for the glory of his name and the good of his people. Let's have that balance. Let's have that balance. God heals, but God is sovereign. Working of miracles certainly would be included in that healing. It might include some exorcism, might include some natural miracle. 
I could imagine a situation where uh, God might, there was a flooding situation maybe. We should pray that it wouldn't rain and God might stay the rain or he might not. Or that God might just perform some extraordinary event using the gift of faith in the body to bring about some miracle. So all of those things, remember, demystify these things. And then these next few quickly, prophecy. This is very misunderstood. There's two things here, prophecy and tongues. I'm just going to hit on them lightly, and we're going to devote full sermons to these gifts when we get to chapter 14. Prophecy, friends, is not the, the, the predicting of the future, as the Old Testament prophets oftentimes did. Prophecy is a, uh, it's the telling something that God has spontaneously brought to mind. It is something that God gives a Christian that is sort of an illuminating fact about the way of Christ and the glory of his name that you just speak. It's some truth that God wants to bring to bear on his people at that moment. I I hope that in every one of my sermons there's prophetic speech that in speech between Christians there's just, just, our, our conversations are full of prophetic speech. And it's not, again, it's not this mystical, strange, you know, a holy roller type talk. It is just everyday gift that should be in operation. And prophecy is merely the speaking forth of the truth of God in some situation that God gives to an individual Christian to bring God's truth to bear. The distinguishing between spirits. It's just a sense between understanding, kind of seeing behind the veil, so to speak, and being able to give wisdom and discernment. So uh, it might be, in, in, in course, in biblical times where there's lots of demon-possessed people walking around more clearly, obviously, maybe realizing that something was evil. But in our day, I think that certainly spiritual warfare is still at work. Certainly people are guided by demonic spirits. And this might just be a a gift to be able to see that, to realize that some particular influence in this situation is not of God and to give wisdom in that situation. It might be uh, saying to a brother or sister, hey man, the way that you're going, that that person that you're involved with, there's just something, there's something, they're just, that's not of Christ. Stay away from that. Very practical. Various kinds of tongue. What is a tongue? And we're going to talk about this in much more, uh, much more precision in a few weeks when we get to chapter 14, as I said. But I believe the tongue here that he has in view is a prayer or praise spoken in syllables or a language not understood by the speaker. I think it has several different potential uh, variations. It could be another known human language that's not known by anybody at that time that isn't interpreted. Or it could potentially be a sort of heavenly language that's not a known human spoken language at that time. So we'll, we'll m- much more thoroughly break down what tongues are when we get to them. And then in, in the ninth uh, one that he lists there is the interpretation of, that, of, of a tongue, which is quite obviously the interpretation of the tongue in the language that is known by those present in that situation. So those are the nine gifts that Paul mentions. Again, this is not an exhaustive list. There's much overlap. As many people as are in this room that are Christians today, there are different sorts of nuances and giftings of the Holy Spirit in your life. A couple questions I want us to end with. Why do these gifts often seem like they are not normative in the church today? Well, some Christians who I love and respect and have learned much from would say that that some of these gifts have ceased. Let me just talk briefly about that. I do not believe that the gifts of the Holy Spirit have ceased. Where do they get that from? They they get it primarily from 1 Corinthians chapter 13, which we'll study in a couple weeks, where the Apostle Paul says that when that which is perfect has come, that which is partial or imperfect shall pass away. And so the gifts are imperfect and partial. And it does say that there's coming a day when the gifts will cease when that which is perfect has come. And I think many people that believe that the gifts have passed away believe that what Paul is referring to there when he says that which is perfect has come, they think that that means the, the organization of the Bible, the completion of the Word of God. And now that we have the Word of God in completeness like the apostles did not have, that we no longer need the spiritual gifts. I don't think, however, that that's what Paul was speaking about when he said that which is perfect has come. I think that what's in view there is when Jesus comes back again. Because he says, he equates then to that time when that which is perfect has come will be a time when we shall see face to face, when we shall be known as we are. So I think all of that points to when Christ comes back for his people. We'll, we'll, we'll study that much more thoroughly. 
But here's why I think, I think we must admit, though, even for those of us that would believe the gifts continue, that it doesn't seem like the gifts are in quite as much operation as they were back in biblical times. Why is that? Have you ever thought about that? I think John Calvin has a very good answer to that. He wrote this in his commentary on the book of Corinthians. John Calvin, the great reformer, uh, pretty important guy in church history. This is what John Calvin wrote. He said, today we see our own slender resources, speaking of spiritual gifts, our poverty, in fact. But this is undoubtedly the punishment we deserve as a reward for our ingratitude. For God's riches are not exhausted, not has his, nor has his liberality grown less, but we are not worthy of his largesse or capable of receiving all that he generously gives. What Calvin is saying there, I think, is that the church, at least in his day in the 1500s, wasn't seeking God maybe like they should. And I'm not necessarily making a statement about what Calvin believed about the gifts, but this is, I think, the principle of what he's saying at is true for us. Listen, we're Americans, man. We don't need gifts. We got buildings and guitars and microphones and children's ministry and all sorts of stuff, man. Who needs God to really show up? We got this thing. And so whether or not you believe in spiritual gifts and whether or not they're, they're around today or not, friends, can you at least admit that we don't seek God like we should? And maybe that has an effect on whatever God is trying to do among us. And so one of the things that I want God to stir in my heart and in our heart is that we would earnestly desire all that God has for us. Friends, do you realize how easy it is to put it on an autopilot, man? Look, we can just, we can just, I can ride off into the sunset for the next 30 years. As long as I keep you guys happy, preach relatively biblical sermons, don't do anything stupid, stay faithful to my wife, don't be ridiculous with my money, don't have any disqualifying sin, just kind of keep it in the rails and stay biblical, I could coast off into the sunset and have a retirement. But would God really have moved through us, friends? Would we be people that are willing to go after him, to see him move? And I think that's what Calvin is hinting at here, is that we don't see all that God has for us because we are lazy, selfish Americans. So friends, may God stir our hearts wherever you are on this spectrum. I don't want you to just adopt a theological position at the end of this study of 1 Corinthians 12, 13, and 14. I want your passion and your affection for Christ and the gifts that he gives in the Holy Spirit and the advance of the gospel and the holiness of your life and the aroma of Christ in this church to grow, friends, to burst from us. That's my goal. That's my hope. And I want it to be yours as well. And the second question, and I end on this, is how can I know what my gifts are? Well, the American church is awash in spiritual gift inventories and websites you can go to and all this stuff. And friend, I think probably there's some helpfulness in that. I'm not bashing those things. I used to be a real cynical little punk when I was an early preacher. I used to just find things that I thought were silly and just, you know, be sarcastic about them. And then I'd get emails from people saying, hey, man, he's off killer. And so I understand. I've matured a little bit. So if that's helpful to you, that's great. But... Let me just point you in this direction. How do you know what your gifts are? Ask another Christian. Ask a brother sister, brother, sister in the Lord. Hey, man, what do you see in me that God seems to be using? Don't isolate yourself to these nine things or to the six things he mentions in Romans 12 or to the four things he mentions in Ephesians 4 or five things. Ask another Christian, hey, what do you see God doing? In, what's your passion? What, what, do you, what are you drawn towards? And then is it confirmed by a brother or sister in the Lord? And then are you doing that thing? Are you actually doing it? Or are you in your sort of selfishness and self-absorption and laziness just sort of not operating and not moving in that thing? So what are your gifts? Have you thought about that? Is the gift terminating on you? Is God using that gift in you for the glory of his name and the joy of his people? I pray that as we end this study, that we would all ask ourselves that question and that God would unleash a river of gifts in this con congregation and in our lives individually for the advance of the gospel. Well, as the worship team comes back, as I mentioned at the beginning, friends, this isn't about 
getting through a list or a doctrinal position or speaking in tongues or words of wisdom or physical healing. This is about the gospel. Do you know Jesus? Have you, has the Holy Spirit opened your heart? Friends, you can't do it yourself. You can't do it yourself. Do you realize that's, that's the humbling but really spectacular news of the gospel? You must be saved by God. You don't save yourself. Have you been convicted of sin? Is the Holy Spirit opening your, the door of your heart right now? Here's the good news, friends. I believe all of that is very likely evidence that He is saving you. So, so stop deciding to be born. <laughs> None of us decided to be born. Do you realize how good that is? I mean, do you realize how that releases you from work? You know what some of you are like? I had this picture last night as I was driving somewhere. Picture a free banquet, a rich feast. Picture this banquet hall that has the finest of foods. And over the entrance to this banquet hall, it says free feast. Free feast. Whosoever will come and eat, come and dine whosoever will come, it's free. And some of you in this room are like people standing outside the free feast shouting, I don't have enough money. Can somebody spare me a couple dollars to get in? Friends, do you realize the ridiculousness of trying to work our way into salvation or think we're good enough? Some of you have bought into this lie that you're not good enough to be saved. You're right. That's the point. That's why it's called grace. Come. Come, you who are hungry. Come, you who are thirsty. It's without price, Isaiah says. Come. Right now, do you even realize it? Do you even sense it in your heart? That's the gift of the Holy Spirit making you alive. You're being born, friend. You're being born right now. You're passing through the birth canal of the Holy Spirit. You're being born. You know what you got to do? All you got to do is cry, Abba, Father, faith, turn. Turn from your sin, friend. Turn from your sin and turn to Christ in faith. Do it right now. Come on, right now, trust in Jesus. The Spirit is able to bring life. Do you have ears to hear? He can do it for you, friends. Don't look beneath, beneath the ice to find fire, as Spurgeon says. Look to Jesus right now, right now. He's mighty to save. It's a scandal, friends. It's a scandal what God does on the cross. He saves us by grace through the Holy Spirit right now. Turn from your sin and turn towards faith in Jesus, young soldier. Young soldier, listen, turn from sin right now. Turn from self-trust. God gave you strength and he gave you a good mind and you've rested on it and you're leaning on it. But it was never meant to stop there. Turn from the gift God has given you of intelligence and strength and turn to humility and trust toward Jesus. Do it right now, young man. Do it right now, businessman who's lived his life in sort of a, a Christian hypocrisy. You've been part of a church, but you've never really come to faith in Jesus. Turn right now. The Holy Spirit can bring life. Sinner who's believed that you are past grace, stop idolizing your sin. Do you realize what you're doing? You're standing outside the banquet hall that says free, trying to dig in your pocket for some quarters. Come to Christ. Don't esteem your sin. I don't care how scandalous it has been. Don't esteem your sin greater than the grace of Christ on the cross. Come to Christ. Turn to Jesus. Even right now. That's the greatest miracle. That's the greatest gift of the Holy Spirit. So let us pray. Lord, as we come now to respond to these words, Lord, I pray that if there's unbelievers in this room, that they would stop being pagans led astray by mute, worthless idols.
And that, Holy Spirit, you would give life. And friend, if that's you right now, turn from your sin and turn towards trusting Jesus. Don't wait for me to ask you to raise your hand or recite some prayer. That's not how you become a Christian. Those things might be helpful, but you become a Christian by believing in Jesus. Right now, believe in Jesus. Believe in him. Believe in Jesus. Lord, would you do that, I pray? Would you give life? And Father, for the rest of this that have already trusted in you, God, would you stir in us a passion to be used of God in ways that bring glory to your name? Would you put in us an earnestness for the things that the Holy Spirit has equipped us with, for your glory and our joy? And I pray it in Jesus' name.